If you're with us this morning, you don't have a Bible. Men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And then the Lord wants everyone to own a Bible and to read a Bible. So if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. As the old saying is, is you show me a Bible that's worn out and I'll show you a Christian who isn't. And there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? And the other side of the truth is uh, there as well. You show me a Bible that's not worn out, I'll show you a Christian who is worn out. So it works both ways. But we don't want to get too exhortive in just chit-chatting here because the text that we're getting to will be exhortive enough. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, first four verses. And thy brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you still are not able, for you're still carnal. For where there are envy and strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this, these four verses in the volume of this book that is the single greatest revelation of yourself to us, Lord. We thank you that we need never turn to this book independent of the author, independent of your Holy Spirit. And we just acknowledge that these four verses are intended to do something very important in our lives as your children. And we ask that by your Spirit that those things would be accomplished. We pray, Lord, for any of us that have settled into a carnal Christian life that you would use today to shake us out of that condition and into the fullness of what you have for us. And those of us, Lord, who are not in that place, we pray that you would use our time in your word today to forever help us to recognize the marks and the signs of carnality that we would never, ever exchange the living, vital, beautiful, blood-bought relationship that is ours from Christ for anything that we would come up with on our own. And, Lord, we pray for each man and woman that stands before you right now that is not yet a Christian. They haven't yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. We pray that today your Spirit would work in such a way that they would realize that they're home, Lord, that this is your truth, that you are their creator and want to be their Savior, Lord, and that they would then enter into the relationship that you have purchased for them through the sacrifice of your Son upon the cross. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in their lives as well. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Basically, in this passage, the Apostle Paul is communicating to these Christians at the city of Corinth. He's saying to them, grow up, you bunch of big babies. Now, we could just close up in prayer right now and ask the worship team to close us up in a song, and we basically have the gist of the verses. 
but they are worthy of developing a little bit so we can understand what Paul is saying and why he's saying what it is that he's saying here. Sometimes we read the Bible and, of course, the Holy Spirit is so tender, He's so gentle. We appreciate that in our own lives. And, you know, smoking flax, He will not quench. A bruised reed, He will not break. So the Lord comes to us so carefully and so with such measure so often. And then sometimes we can read like these four verses in the Old King James and the New King James, and the language is so stately, it's so kind of majestic on its own and so beautiful that we can fail to realize that when that church at Corinth unrolled that scroll and they started to read this letter and they got to those verses in chapter 3, those verses stung. That would have been a very, very hard thing to read coming from the man who was kind of your spiritual father who the Lord had sent to them to establish that church and preach the gospel to them. And so this would have really stung them, and it needed to. Because if we ever settle into a condition of carnality as Christians, we ever become... Uh, stay, never move out of become, being a babe as, as a Christian in a carnal kind of state or we move beyond that and we come back into that, we need someone to speak to us with real clarity to wake us up related to that. And so sometimes the Bible does sting. The Bible talks about the fact that faithful are the wounds of a friend. Uh, better than the kisses of an enemy. And so the Lord is always faithful to tell us what we need to hear. And here in this passage is this strong rebuke of, of carnal Christianity in order to wake them up, to wake us up to, to it so that we don't fall into any of this. All of that raises, of course, the question, uh, and the question is, what in the world is a carnal Christian? In this early section here of 1 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit speaks principally of three different kinds of people. In chapter 2, verse 14, he speaks of the natural man. And the natural man is the person who has experienced a spiritual birth, I mean a physical birth rather, but they have not yet experienced a spiritual birth. They are non-Christians. So They are alive physically, but they're dead spiritually. And because they are only alive physically, but not alive spiritually, this man's interest in his aims in life won't go beyond the physical life. And because he's born again and he hasn't experienced the spiritual birth, he can't grasp spiritual things, the things that only the Holy Spirit can reveal to a person. And so he lives his life in completely ignorant of this gigantic, active, spiritual realm that exists all around him. He may even be a very religious person, but if he isn't born again, if he isn't indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he has no capacity to appreciate the spiritual realm any more than a blind man can appreciate 
a painting by Rembrandt or a deaf man can appreciate uh, the music of Beethoven. So he speaks of the natural man, the unsaved man. And then in our passage here this morning, he speaks of Christians, but he divides them into two categories. And there are first the spiritual man, those who are spiritual in verse 1. And this is the Christian who is not only born again, but he also possesses the mind of Christ. He receives the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. He longs for the direction and the wisdom of God. He doesn't receive his wisdom from the world, but from God's Word and from the Holy Spirit. The spiritual Christian is one who's filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. They have a living, growing, dynamic present tense, current relationship with God, and they have not only made Jesus their Savior, but they have also made Jesus their Lord. And because they have done that, they are able then to successfully resist and withstand the conforming pressure of the culture all around them in trying to make them more like the world And their great desire is, instead of becoming like the world, they long to become more and more like Jesus and live the life that he's called us to. And then he speaks of carnal Christians, those who are carnal, also in verse 1. The carnal Christian is saved. They are on their way to heaven. Paul calls them brethren. So they are Christians. And, And yet they live a life that is utterly dominated by their flesh, by the fallen nature that they received in their physical birth from Adam and Eve. So they live their Christian life not obeying the dictates of the Holy Spirit or the leading of the Holy Spirit or the instruction of God's Word. They obey the lusts of their flesh. They obey their body appetite. So if their body tells them to do something, they do it. And they obey their body appetites no matter what conviction the Holy Spirit might bring to their lives for them not to do that and no matter what the Word of God says. If their emotions tell them to do something, then they will do that regardless of what God says about it. If they think about something in their mind, they will immediately do that and it doesn't matter one whit to them what God's Word has to say about it, whether it pleases Him, whether it doesn't please Him. They are self-willed, and they have no concern for the will of God related to their lives. Now, a carnal Christian is different than a struggling Christian. If you're a Christian here today and you say, well, you know, I struggle against sin, and I just feel all alone. Don't feel all alone. Join the crowd. One day when we are in heaven, we will have a body that will have no capacity for it to even be tempted. And on top of that, we will be in an environment in which no temptation will exist at all. But we're not in heaven yet, and we don't have our eternal bodies yet. And so all of us struggle against sin and against temptation the course of our pilgrimage here. So you should never feel, I'm a carnal Christian because I have these thoughts, or I have a carnal Christian because I have to struggle against these one, two, three, four sins in my life. The fact that you struggle against those sins reveals the fact that you're not a carnal Christian. 
A carnal Christian doesn't care. For whatever reason, the voice of the Spirit has been like put all the way down to number one on the volume scale, and they don't care. They have a life they want to live. They're going to live that life, and they don't care what anybody else says about it, not even what God has to say uh, about that. Now, there's some consequences to that life. We'll get into that a little bit later. But you, because you struggle with sin or we struggle with sin doesn't mean that we're a carnal Christian. The fact that we care makes us different. A carnal Christian simply, by and large, doesn't care. And so they don't live according to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit or the wisdom of God's Word. They live according to their own wisdom. They live under their own direction, and they live under the so-called wisdom of the world. They want to go to heaven when they die, but they don't want to fully live the Christian life now because they feel that if they live the Christian life that's described in the Word of God, there's too much out there in the world that they still want to experience and they don't want to give up. And so they work out their own version of Christianity. They make up their own... They not based upon the Word of God or the leading of the Holy Spirit. They come up with their own definition, their own idea of what Christianity ought to be, what they're willing to live, and they settle into that. And it's always a Christianity that doesn't cost them anything. It's always a Christianity that doesn't involve them denying their flesh at all. They know nothing about what Jesus spoke of as the bare requirement to become one of his disciples, and that is, he said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. The carnal Christian sets up his life a hundred miles away from the demand of Jesus related to that passage. They know nothing of that uh, experientially. They're kind of like the uh, mixed multitude in the Old Testament that followed the children of Israel out of Egypt. And in Old Testament imagery, uh, Egypt is a type of the world that we get saved out of, out of the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. And so there was this whole group. They were non-Jews, and they wanted out of Egypt. They didn't like the bondage of Egypt. They were every bit the slaves of the Egyptians that the children of Israel were. But once they got out of Egypt, and now God begins to reveal himself to the children of Israel, and they see what it means to walk with God, they don't want that either. And, and so they, they come, came out of there, and they're the kind of Christian who has one foot in the world and the other foot in church or the other foot in the things of the Lord. There's a lot about Egypt, the old life that they wanted to be free of. That's why a carnal Christian gets saved. They look at it and say, there are things that I have become in bondage to as it relates to sin. I want to be free of those things. And I know if I stay in Egypt in the world and I don't become a Christian, those things are going to destroy me. But then there's a whole world of lesser things that they enjoy, that their flesh enjoys, that are prohibited by the Word of God, and they're not ready to give those things up yet. They still feel that they can control those sins and enjoy those sins. 
sins. And, and they, they don't want to give up those passing pleasures of sin, not even for a, a season. And so there's a lot of Egypt that is still attractive to them that they still want to participate in. So they kind of want it both ways. They want God and they want the world and they want all of it on their own terms. And so we would say they want their cake and to eat it too. It reminds me of a story about a man who was slightly overweight because of his sweet tooth. And uh, he fell in love with a man, by the, a woman by the name of Edith. And uh, she was unwilling to marry him because of his extra pounds. And he had to discover the hard way that you can't always have your cake and Edith too. So, I saw that in a comic strip once and I really, really enjoyed it. Now you know why I don't tell jokes in the service. And so the mixed multitude was constantly speaking to the children of Israel in terms of their intense craving for the things of Egypt. They wanted the garlics. They wanted the leek. They want leeks. They wanted the onions, all of these things. And the children of Israel would then follow them in this. They'd yield to those same kind of fleshly cravings. And then God would be forced to chasten the children of Israel. And that same mixed multitude lives inside of every, exists in every single church in the world today. Uh, what size their numbers are, nobody knows, only God knows, but they exist in every church in the whole world, people who want it both ways. They know that they have no way of convincing the world to become more like the church. That's hopeless. The one thing, you got to give the world credit. They will never compromise. you got to give them credit for that. They will never compromise what they are. And the carnal Christian recognizes, wanting both worlds, that they will never convince the world to become more like Christianity or more like the church. And so they put all of their effort in applying great pressure upon the church to become more like the world. And it's a considerable pressure. I think the carnal Christian is a lot like a gentleman by the name of Esau in the Old Testament. You might remember him. He was the brother of Jacob, and he sold his birthright for a bowl of red, red stew. And as somebody has observed concerning Esau, he was all kitchen and no chapel, all fleshly appetite and no church. And it's a New Testament problem as well. Christians who elevate the lusts of their flesh above God's will and above God's purposes for their life. And they're known as carnal Christians, perhaps saved on their way to heaven by the grace of God, but dominated by their fleshly appetites, willingly so, and without any concern for possessing the promises of God. Now, some of the marks of carnality the Holy Spirit lists for us here in these four verses The carnal Christian, number one, is a Christian who never grows into spiritual maturity. And as a result, Paul calls them babes in Christ. Now, there are things that uh, babies do that are wonderful. And everything that a baby does is wonderful when they're babies. But those very same characteristics that are so cute in a baby... Uh, they don't wear so well on a 15-year-old 
or a 30-year-old or a 50-year-old. I think about all of the drooling that babies do. (laughs) It's cute in a baby, but it's a lot less attractive in a 20-year-old on a first date. (laughs) Yesterday, uh, Pastor Matt Phillips and uh, Leah were married here in the church, and it was a wonderful time. And the reception after, they had uh, cupcakes. And um, I was talking to one of the brothers in the fellowship hall, and um, the little daughter of the Stearns had gotten a hold of a cupcake, and she was thoroughly enjoying it. And she's just a little tiny little girl, and she had frosting all over the place. And my friend said, um, he said, what if we did that? And I thought, make an illustration for the sermon I'm preaching tomorrow. It looks great on a little baby, you know, but it doesn't look good on a couple of 50-something-year-olds. I think about babies and how they spit their food out all over you when they want to. And for some reason, they know that's funny. They, they get a kick out of that. They'll just laugh right at you. Cute in a baby, completely unacceptable in a 20-year-old. If they don't like their food, they just shove it right off of the high chair onto the floor. And again, somehow they, they from Adam and Eve, they, they know that that's a funny thing to them, that they shouldn't be doing that. And somehow it's not that pleasant for you. Diapers are never cute, but at least they're acceptable on a baby. They don't know how to use a toilet yet. Diapers on adults, that's a little less acceptable. Babies cry and they make a fuss in a scene anytime they don't get their way. We accept that in babies. It's unattractive in adults or mature Babies never take anyone into consideration other than themselves. They wake up any time they want to and expect everyone to just jump up and be as happy about them being up at 2 in the morning as they are. And when they kiss you, they kiss you right on the lips with those whole, wet, slobbering mouth that they have. And when a baby does that, you accept that. You wipe your mouth as soon as you can. But... Totally unacceptable beyond the baby stage. Babies are completely self-centered, very demanding. You never have a baby in a crib, you know, suddenly speak up and say, Yo, Mom, what can I do for you today? You're doing all this for me. What can I... I like that commercial where that kid in the crib talks about investments. (laughs) Some reason it's just kooky, and I like it. I like that Geico commercial, too, with that camel. Hey, what day is it? What day is it? Hey, what day? They all ignore him, you know. It's Wednesday. It's hump day. He's trying to get him to... Well, if a baby was ever anything other than self-centered, the mom would just fall over dead. All these things are fine in a baby, but they're not fine in a child or an adult or a teenager, or someone who should be growing into maturity. And the same thing that Paul, the point that Paul's making here is the same thing is true of carnal Christians. They're very, very self-centered, very demanding, completely dependent upon other Christians for uh, their Christian lives. And they live their entire Christian lives in this protracted state 
of infancy. They never, ever grow into maturity, spiritually speaking. So the picture is kind of like this. You have two nurseries in a home. You have a one-month-old over in this nursery. Now, one-month-old is in a crib, and uh, there she is in that lying in a crib, sound asleep. She's got a little pacifier in her mouth, and she's got a diaper on, and a little nighty, and the whole thing, and the little mobile above her head. You go in there. All of that is exa- the world is exactly as it should be. You walk in and you say, that is beautiful. You go into the other nursery, and if there is a 30-year-old lying in that crib with a pacifier in their mouth and a diaper on and a little nighty and a mobile drooling all over themselves and they can't talk yet, that's a tragedy. And that's the contrast that he's creating here. He's taking something from a physical realm that we can understand, and he's saying now, as it relates to spiritually, this is the way that from the vantage point of heaven things are looked at when a person is a Christian for two years and five years and ten years and fifteen years and twenty years and they never move from this particular condition. It's a tragedy. It's heartbreaking to God. And yet so many Christians, in fact an entire church here at Corinth, had settled into that particular condition. Every single Christian should always be growing spiritually throughout our entire Christian lives. Many Christians, they don't. They hardly, you meet them, they become born again. You meet them five years later, ten years later, twenty years later. They are hardly more mature than they were the day that they became a Christian. They just stopped growing And the reason that we should always be growing as Christians is because if Jesus is the standard for Christianity of what we are to grow into, and he is that standard, then there's always going to be room for growth all the way until the end of our lives. None of us will ever be perfect. We'll be perfect in heaven, but not the side of heaven There'll always be a gap between, you know, what, what we should be and what we actually are. But the, the different kind of a gap theory is the gap that exists between what we are and what we know we should be as Christians. That net gap should always be narrowing and it narrows as we grow as Christians and we grow in Christ likeness. That gap, should we should never stop where that gap is never narrowing and certainly never come to a place where we were once this spiritual, but now we've decided to settle into a life of carnality, and then that gap begins to broaden out. So we should always be growing as Christians, always be growing uh, in in our Christ-likeness. And anything other than a growing Christianity is a Christianity that God doesn't know anything about. And the fact that a person stops growing is a sure sign that a person is no longer being led by the Holy Spirit, no longer hearing the Holy Spirit, no longer um, giving a place of authority to the Word of God in their lives. Think about the Apostle Paul. I always do when I think about growing all the way to the end. And I want to grow all the way to the end until I go to be with the Lord. 
And the Apostle Paul got saved. What a dramatic salvation experience that he had. He wrote the book of Philippians 30 years after he got saved. 25, 25 years uh, after he had become an apostle and actively serving the Lord. You think about how many Christians. There's this funny thing that once the Christian life moves X number of years, it starts to be counted in terms of decades, how often the same way that we kind of view retirement in our culture, that, all right, I've worked hard enough to hear, and now these remaining years of my life, I'm going to do what I want. And we take it from the physical realm, and we take it over into the spiritual realm. And so often a person will grow for a block of time, 25, 30 years, and then decide that I've been spiritual long enough, I've grown as a Christian long enough, other people can do what I've done in terms of the church or in terms of ministry or whatever. I'm going to take my life back under my own control, and I'm going to dictate. It's going to be self-determined what my Christianity is going to be. So it's something that all of us face. It's a temptation that we face. The Apostle Paul took, and in, in, at that particular point in his life, and you think if anybody had a right to, after these multiple missionary journeys, he's established all of these churches, he's already going to be the most famous person other than Jesus in, in terms of New Testament history and all. If anybody could have pulled back and said, listen, I've paid my dues, I'm just going to flesh out a little bit. It would have been the Apostle Paul, and yet he never did that. And he wrote late in his life to the church at Philippi, and he said, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended. I haven't attained. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Later on, as he's in a Roman prison, and he is due to be martyred at any time, church history tells us, the Apostle Paul was beheaded for his faith. And as he's in that prison, he writes a letter to Timothy, and he writes to Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. In those days, you had to bring your own blankets or your own clothing to stay warm. In prison, they didn't supply it to you. And then he said, bring the books, especially the parchments. He said, Paul, take a break. I mean, God has already used you by His Holy Spirit to produce what proportion of the New Testament already and look at what what you've done and look at all that God has done through you and all of these things. You can rest. You can relax. He said, no, bring me the books. I want to continue to grow until my final breath. And it's a wonderful example. So we're always to be growing as Christians, and so many don't. Do you? Are you growing? Are you continuing to grow? I want it to sting. I want it to sting my heart if I've fallen into that place. Are you listening to this sermon right now and you say, I have checked out on this. If I'd have known he was preaching on this, I wouldn't have come because you're a carnal Christian. The solution is not to ignore me or to ignore the passage. 
but to listen to it, to recognize the condition, and then to repent of it. And it's as true of me as it's true of anybody else. There's life and death in the room anytime we're gathered around God's Word. Serious business. Serious business. He tells us about the diet of the carnal Christian in verse 2. They'll only tolerate milk, the simplest truths of God's Word. They can't tolerate solid food. So they want baby food all of the time. Baby food is great when you're a baby. But it's silly to still be eating baby food when I'm 20 years old. And yet the carnal Christian thinks nothing of it. He would be ashamed or she would be ashamed if physically she went someplace, opened up her lunchbox, and in the company of everyone else pulled out a bunch of Gerber's baby jars and ate it. And somehow yet there is no shame in being unable to partake of anything but milk or baby food, spiritually speaking, and to accept that as my spiritual condition and not to feel that there's something wrong with that. When there's a whole world of steak and salmon and halibut and crab, we're in the New Testament now, and broccoli and peaches and almonds and asparagus to say nothing of lima beans and Brussels sprouts. Every illustration breaks down, doesn't it, somewhere? In terms of a physical diet, you think about the whole world of blessing a person would miss out on if all they ever ate all their life was baby food from a jar. If you ran into an adult that was willing to do that, you'd want to just shake some sense into them. You're missing peaches. You're missing a salad. You are missing Italian food. You are missing Chinese food. You are missing Italian food. You are missing Mexican food. Do you have any idea what it is that you are missing? And the same thing is true spiritually. Growing up and maturing spiritually isn't some terrible thing. It introduces us into a life that no one in their right mind would ever want to miss out on. And the Apostle Paul is calling them to maturity, not because it's some terrible life, but because it's the greatest life that a person can live, the most rich life the most meaningful life that a person can live. But the carnal Christian has no appetite for it. They have no interest in it. And just as physical growth is impossible without physical nourishment, so spiritual growth is impossible without spiritual nourishment. And what is the nourishment? It's the Word of God, the bread of life. And every time we read the Bible... Our spiritual man is nourished and we move forward in maturity. Every time we study the Bible, our spiritual man is matured and moves forward in that direction. Every time we listen to a Bible study or instruction in the Word, we're taught the Word. It's nourishing us spiritually and we grow as a result. Jesus declared that God's Word, the Bible, is supposed to be the single greatest influence a Christian's life.
not television. It's funny when you're younger. I'm not younger anymore. When I first came to Modesto, it was like, man, you are so young. I never get that anymore. <laughs> I'm not old. I'm oldish. But it's funny when you're younger and you feel like you've got a lot more time out in front of you than you have behind you. Now, I remember at least between a half dozen and dozen times that I've listened to teaching pastors talk about Christians who never develop any kind of consistent time in the Word of God because they're so busy or whatever the excuse is. And then they bring in the example of television where, where I forget what the last statistic I saw is the average American watch is six and a half hours of television a day. I don't know what it is for Christians. And where I am in life now, where there's a lot more behind me than in front of me, I get what they were trying to say. I might not have listened to it and obeyed it like I should, but I'm glad they said it, and I'm glad it was in the mix to make me stop and think about where my time goes, where our time goes, and what is truly important and what is unimportant. So it isn't just pulling these things out of the culture to do kind of a guilt gotcha on people, but to really look at those things. The Word of God is to have the single greatest, it is to be the single greatest influence in a Christian's life, period. Not television, not the media, not talk radio, not pop culture, not Facebook. Every so often, they come out with the new statistics about what percentage of Christians in the United States have ever read the Bible even once, or what percentage of Christians in the United States of America can even name the names of the four Gospels. And when you read the statistics, they're so depressing. But you think about how many Christians can tell you everything about the Zimmerman trial, everything about vampires, anything you could ever want to know about pop culture. They are a walking people magazine. They are receiving Kim Kardashian's tweets right now in church. They know everything about their favorite sports team. They know everything about all of the video games that have ever been made and their favorite ones. They know everything about the economy and the stock market. So it isn't that they don't have the capacity to learn or that they lack the ability to focus on what they want to focus on, but their appetite is wrong. They want to become mature concerning the wrong things. I've been told for 20 years as a pastor, 
But listen, the culture has changed. The attention span of the American public is different. You've got, you got to get in and out of there in 15 minutes, max 20, because these people don't, you, they aren't able to concentrate like past generations. And then I talk to this guy over here, and he can, st- he can sit on a living room couch without even a restroom break or a chip break with that video game thing in his hand for six hours nonstop, and I'm supposed to cut a sermon down to 20 minutes to accommodate that, I won't do it. And we are convincing ourselves... We are convincing ourselves that the culture is something that it isn't, that we are uniquely this thing that has never existed before in human history. We aren't. We are the same as we've ever been. People put their time into and they concentrate on what they want to focus on and what is important to them, and they will do a tremendous sacrifice to themselves. But for the carnal Christian, the Word of God doesn't have that place in their lives. Everything else has that place in their lives. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus also declared in John chapter 15, if you abide in me, talking about relationship, and my words abide in you, talking about the Word of God, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. And we abide in him. We have this healthy, deep, personal relationship with God as we read the Bible, study the Bible, know the Bible, and then obey it. And the obedience is the key with the carnal Christian. And I think it's very important to realize as Christians that our spiritual maturity is not based supremely upon what we know about the Bible or from the Bible, but it's based supremely upon how much we know is actually put into practice in our lives. There's a whole world of Christians that exist today, and they are carnal Christians who never think of themselves as carnal because they know a mountain of information from the Bible. From the day they were born, they've been in church. They have heard literally multiplied thousands of sermons, but none of it translates into their daily life. But they consider themselves spiritual on the basis of what they know rather than what they practice. A carnal Christian can know mountains of information and never appropriate it to their life. I think about Lot's wife in the Old Testament. Think about what she knew before Sodom was destroyed. She had angels at her house the night before. They told her ahead of time from God that God was going to destroy the city. She had a mountain of information inside of her head, the Word of God, the revelation of God. And yet when she fled Sodom with her husband, she looked back longingly upon Sodom and was made into a pillar of ash because she had mountains of information inside of her mind, but her heart was still in Sodom. And the heart 
If the heart and the mind are not united, the heart will always win out over the mind. It will always do that. It need not for the person who wants to live by the convictions of their mind, but in the carnal person it always will. And I'd also like to observe that a person does not become mature based solely upon how long they've been a Christian. Their time and title is how we would say it when I worked for the phone company. Again, there are those Christians that consider themselves mature on the basis of how long they've been a Christian. I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've been a Christian for 50 years. Years. And they're living a life of carnality. And here they are, they living this life of carnality, disobedience to God's word, and they do this and they do this and they do this, and here's this baby Christian just six weeks old in the Lord, and they look and they say, But grandma or mom or dad or whatever friend How can you do that in the light of what Jesus says? Don't you talk to me about that. I've been a Christian since before you were born. And thinks that maturity just comes by virtue of the passage of time rather than appropriating the Word of God into our lives and submitting ourselves to Him. And then, too, you can have the kind of Christian who... When they become a Christian, they become deeply spiritual. I mean, they just grow by leaps and bounds and true spirituality for years and years, even decades sometimes. And then they reach a point where they're satisfied with their spiritual maturity and they decide to take their life back under their own control. And it isn't long before you don't recognize them. They have become a carnal Christian, a flesh-dominated person. And so carnal Christians aren't just those who never grow out of infancy. Many do grow to a place of maturity, but then they return to a life dominated by the flesh and by self-will. And finally, other marks of carnality that he lists here in verse 3 is envy, strife, and divisions. And it's interesting that Paul returns to this because he's already talked about it in chapter 1. The envy and the strife and the party spirit, that it doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the flesh. It's a mark of carnality and carnal Christians, and it's a mark of spiritual immaturity. You say, why in the world would Paul repeat himself on that issue so quickly in this letter except for the fact that we need to hear it over and over again? I have a friend who's in heaven. I have many friends who are in heaven now. His name is Bill McDonald. I like what he wrote concerning this. He said, There is enough of the flesh in every one of us to wreck any local church or any other work of God. And therefore, we must submerge our own petty personal whims and attitudes and work together in peace for the glory of God and for common blessing. And it's true. I don't read polls that much, and I generally don't read Christian polling of Christians and trends in the culture and are we post-Christian, are we this and that. It's all too depressing for me. 
I just look at it and say, God, what have you called me to do? And I want to do that, and I want to be that, and I'll leave everything else to you. I don't, crit- I don't criticize it. If you enjoy that, you do that. It's just really, it's just not my cup of tea. But every once in a while, I'll take a look at the polling that has come out in the year related to things. And the polling data today, it indicates that more and more Christians are becoming self-determining concerning their relationship with God and their obedience to his word. In other words, every generation is feeling freer and freer to self-define their Christianity rather than to accept Jesus' definition. The problem is there's a terrible price that gets paid for that. The biggest price is that Christian will never look into the eyes of Jesus one day in eternity and hear from his lips, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And no Christian who does not hear those words from the lips of Jesus can ever consider themselves having been a success in living the Christian life. But for us today in this room, God has called us to live for God in a unique time in human history. The generation behind us, they won't do it. They're not here yet. The generation before us, they've done what they've done and been faithful. We've been called to be faithful in this generation to the things of the Lord. And I happen to believe, as I know a little bit about the Bible, that we are living in what is called the last days, the end times. And when you read what the Bible has to say about the characteristics of the world in the last days, morally and spiritually, it speaks of the fact that the world is going to become darker and darker and it is going to become stronger and stronger in its pull into darkness and into sin. I don't say that we're going to get, start to wring our hands and worry about ourselves and all of that. We've been made for this. We've been made for this generation. We've been made for this time in human history. God is infinite. God is in us. We aren't afraid of these things. But there has to be the recognition that as this world gets stronger and stronger in its pull, in its direction, that it is going to require at the same time maybe the most spiritually mature Christians in the history of the world in order to withstand the pull in that direction. In other words, it is the world's worst time to be a carnal Christian because of the individual danger that that person faces to ultimately being pulled right into the whole big mess that is the world. And so... It's a terrible time. We live in the midst of where Christianity on a daily basis, maybe I would say it is the dominant thing that's happening right now, where it is being driven by the culture. It is defined by the culture and more by the culture and less by the word, and that is increasing by the week and by the month. That's what's going on all around us. 
And that kind of a Christianity has to, you have to, person has to just stop and they have to reject that and say, I don't want somebody else's definition of Christianity that has come out of their own carnality. I don't want my own definition of Christianity that has come out of my own carnality and my own un, the, the unwillingness of my old nature to die, still wanting in a sense of self-preservation to dictate my life and then allow that to become my definition of spirituality rather than what the Bible says. But it's bigger than us. Every unsafe person in this world has a right to see something of Christ in every Christian they know. And they'll never see it in a carnal Christian. They'll only see it in a spiritual Christian. How many of us in this room, when we came to give our lives to the Lord, we gave our lives to the Lord because for years, and some, in some of our cases, for long decades, we had had the privilege of looking at men and women who walked as deeply spiritual Christians, and we got to watch their lives. And though some of them didn't even live long enough to see the day that we would become a Christian, they made an impact upon our lives because the Holy Spirit would not allow that witness to go dead inside of us. And what we owe to Christians who live that way and who walked that way And because we owe so much to those that have gone before us and been that to us, we are debtors to them and also debtors to the generation behind us that they would see something of an authentic and a biblical Christianity in our lives when they see us. Every non-Christian has a right to see something of the life of Christ in every Christian. That is a concern of a spiritual Christian. And it is of no concern to the carnal Christian. And so this morning, the weight of this passage, let's denounce all carnal Christianity. Let's denounce our self-definitions concerning Christianity or the definitions of it from the world or even liberal church situations or whatever it might be. Just reject all of it as nonsense that is destructive to the name of Christ, destructive to our own lives, destructive to the people who are going to one day want to become Christians in the same way that we did, but they want to see something of it in somebody's life before they do. So this beautiful passage that rises up from the pages of Scripture and it stings us if we've settled into a carnal Christianity and it's intended to do that. And we shouldn't just dismiss that sting. We should listen to it and say, all right, I reject this self-defined thing that I've come up with and I commit now to the real Christianity that I see in this Bible that was lived by my Savior. And God will meet us there, and He will fill us with His Holy Spirit, 
and He will take us into the fullness of the life that He has for us that is spiritually so wonderful and so superior that the Apostle Paul says it's a comparison between pulling out jars of Gerber's baby food out of the lunchbox as opposed to leftover pizza or a hoagie or a Philly steak sandwich or fruit or whatever it might be. And there's a world of difference between the two. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He wants to lead us into the most outrageously excellent life a person can live this side of heaven. To live in carnality is to miss all of that. And God does not want us to miss a bit of it. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for your clarity and your word. Thank you for the washing of your word. Thank you for the fire of your word. And Lord, I would just pray, and I know we pray for one another in this room today, that nothing of carnal Christianity would survive in even a single one of our lives, Lord. Bring conviction where it exists, Lord. Bring brokenness. Bring the fear of God, Lord, into those places. But also bring hope, Lord, and a confidence that everything can change as we turn to you 100%. And, Lord, we pray that you would use this time in your word today also to protect us from ever becoming a carnal Christian. Lord, this pull of the flesh, the way that you lay out in this word how to recognize this dangerous trend, this moving in that direction, thank you for your clarity, Lord. And we pray you protect us from any spirit that would take us away from the spirit that filled the Apostle Paul who wanted to grow to his dying breath. That's the Christian life that we want. And Jesus, we thank you for the price that you paid to provide it to us. And we pray all of these things, ask all of these things in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.